Hey y'all, thanks for tuning in to this week's recording of Redeemer Church of Knoxville's Sunday Sermon. We're really glad to have you with us because we know that there are a million different podcasts that you could be listening to right now. So we're thankful that you've chosen to spend some of your day with us. We hope that this recording will be an encouragement to you and that God, by his spirit, will use his word to remind you of Jesus' love. If you would like to reach out to us, we would love to hear from you. To do that, please email us at office at redeemernoxville.org. We also want to give a quick thank you shout out to Evie Andrus and Parker Green, who you hear playing our awesome intro and outro music here each week. Lastly, if you'd like to support Redeemer and her mission to Urban and University Knoxville, please visit www.redeemernoxville.org and look for the little give button in the top right corner. Thank you so much, and here is this week's sermon. Well, good morning, Redeemer. Thank you. My name is Mac Holt. I am the RUF campus minister at the University of Tennessee, and it is so good to have you here with us this morning as we continue our series on the Psalms of Ascent. Uh, These songs that God's people would sing as they went up to Jerusalem uh, to the temple for the feasts uh, each year, and these songs, they shaped the imaginations uh, of God's people of what a life with God in a fallen world was like as they pilgrimaged towards their homeland. And our song this morning is Psalm 129. Uh, It's a song about affliction and perseverance. And so one of your members found that out and texted me yesterday knowing that I'm a Kentucky grad and he said, uh, are you gonna spend 90 minutes talking about the affliction that you face from Tennessee uh, and how you persevere. And uh, sadly, no, that's not what we're gonna talk about this morning and it will not be 90 minutes. But if you have a Bible with you or your smartphone or the bulletin in front of you, turn with me to Psalm 129. This is God's word. Greatly they have afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, Greatly they have afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back, they made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous, he has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I do ask that you would be faithful to your promises again this morning. Meet us by your word. Father, would you comfort those of us who are in need of your comfort? And God, would you convict those of us who have grown too comfortable? And make all of us to know more deeply of your love and to rest in that love. So God, be, gra- be gracious to me this morning and draw a straight line with a crooked stick like me. Amen. When my oldest son, Bear, uh, was learning to ride a bike, it was about the same time that we found out we would be moving to Knoxville. And we learned that Knoxville is a big mountain biking town. And so young Bear, as he learned to ride a bike, he quickly decided, hey, I want to hop on the trails. We were safe. He had a helmet, pads, the whole thing. But what this meant is there were a lot of crashes very early on. And after one of these trips to the trails, uh, 
where there were a lot of crashes. Bear said, I don't think I want to keep riding my bike if it means I keep wrecking and keep crashing, uh, which is understandable. Why would you continue to do something that brings so much pain? But I couldn't let him stop because of the immense joy on his three-year-old face as he was riding through these trails and making up little songs about Bearsy Boy riding the trails. It was just, it was too sweet, it was amazing. I couldn't let it stop. And so um, I did what any dad would do, and I played some classics from the 90s on the ride home. Uh, one in particular, just the chorus, over and over again, because the rest of the song is terrible. But the chorus is a poetic masterpiece. Let me read some for you. You might recognize it. Feel free to sing along. I get knocked down, but I get up again. You're never going to keep me down. I get knocked down, but I get up again. You're never going to keep me down. I get knocked down, but I get up again. You're never going to keep me down. Uh, just over and over again, the windows are down, the music's blasting, I'm screaming the lyrics, Bear's tears are beginning to dry, his head's beginning to bob along with Chumbawamba's tub thumping as it blasts over our speakers. Why did I do this? I wanted Bear to have a song for when he gets knocked down, a song to help him persevere. I wanted him to learn to sing in the midst of the pain and so be able to persevere. That is what this psalm is doing. It's training those who sing it in persevering through affliction. And so you can picture the, the pilgrims who are singing the song and they're heading to Jerusalem, heading to the temple, heading to the presence of God. And as they do so, they're reflecting on how greatly the people of Israel have suffered, how they've been persecuted and afflicted. Greatly, they have afflicted me from my youth, the leader calls out. And then the audience, you all would call back, greatly they have afflicted me from my youth, but they have not prevailed against me. Now Israel's youth is it's referencing Israel's time in Egypt, when the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had, had been brought to Egypt, and they'd grown and multiplied in number, and there were so many of them that the Egyptians freaked out a little bit and said, this, this is not okay. Uh, we can't have this many people from a different country among us and so the Egyptians enslaved them. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. This is a reference to the whips that the Egyptians used to enforce, brutally enforce their slavery. And this theme of being persecuted, being afflicted, it becomes one of the dominant themes of the people of Israel. And not only is this theme of affliction, not only does that theme loom large in the history of Israel, but it's been a continual theme of the New Testament church, the, the new Israel. From the book of Acts onward, history outlines the story of Christians suffering for their faith. You see, affliction and opposition, as we will see this morning, it's promised to followers of Jesus. For their faith. This is more than just the suffering that comes about as living in a fallen world, more than just the suffering of broken relationships, the suffering of sicknesses and death. This is more than the suffering that comes about as a consequence of sin. This is a specific and unique suffering that comes as a result 
of faith in and faithfulness to Christ. Now, if affliction and opposition is promised, how do we persevere? It's exactly what this psalm trains us in. So two points this morning, over the next 90 minutes. The reality of affliction and the reward of affliction. So the first thing that this psalm trains us in is the reality of affliction. The psalmist and the singers, they're looking back to the affliction that they faced under Egypt, and they sing this song so that they will be ready for affliction when it comes their way. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 10, promises us, you will be hated for my name's sake. And in John 15, he tells us, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Peter, picking up this theme in 1 Peter chapter 4, tells us, don't be surprised when persecution comes. In other words, expect it. Affliction and persecution is guaranteed for Christ followers. And we could go on and on, but the reality is clear. For Jesus and the authors of the New Testament, the expectation is that all who follow Christ will suffer for their faith at the hands of the world. And here's why. At its core, persecution is simply the clash between two irreconcilable value systems. Persecution is the clash that occurs when the values of Christ come into conflict with the values of our world as these two systems, these kingdoms, are at absolute odds with one another. And when the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of this world collide in the field of your life, it creates an incredible friction as these two systems come up against each other. And the result is affliction. The result is suffering. And we can see that clash play out in very dramatic ways throughout history, but also throughout the world right now. This morning, in whatever time zone they are in, 215 million Christians will gather and claim Christ as their king and worship him. And as a result, they will face economic exclusion, they will face separation from family and community, they will face physical assaults, arrest, and yes, imprisonment and even death. 215 million Christians, that's the reality that they wake up to today. Now listen, we live in a pluralistic society where the clash between the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of this world is not quite so dramatic. Not so dramatic as to yield imprisonment and death. It's far more subtle, but there is a clash all the same. There is friction all the same. So what might this clash look like? What might suffering for Christ's name, as this psalm in the New Testament promises, what might that look like for American Christians living in Knoxville, Tennessee in 2023? Now here, I, I, I want to be very careful because claims of Christian persecution run rampant and these claims feed the culture war that rages out there and the media monster on our phones and our, our computers that fuels it. Our world is absolutely addicted to outrage. And Christians enter into the culture wars and join these rituals of rage against the other side, receive the obvious outcome of scorn, and then run away calling persecution. For example, last semester, I was with a group of our students on campus, 
And we were walking through Ped Walkway, and we noticed a group of men had set up shop uh, on HSS steps. That's kind of the heart of campus. Um, and they had signs, banners, and they had speakers, and they were beginning to preach. And they were preaching on the topic of biblical sexual ethics. They were getting very, very antagonistic with students. Yelling was happening. And predictably, they drew the outcome of scorn from the students. And I was with our students, and we're watching this happen, and we noticed that all of these speakers, they had these harnesses on their chest, and at the center of the harness was a GoPro camera so that they could record every interaction that they had with the students that they were arguing with. Surprise, surprise, later that day, you could find those videos uploaded to the internet with titles, something around Christian preachers persecuted by college students for preaching a biblical sexual ethic. It was something shorter than that, a lot more pithy, but you get the point. And my students were very conflicted because as they listened to these men and their, their, their speaking, they weren't saying things that were untrue. They were drawing exactly word for word from the scriptures. They were teaching a traditional Orthodox Christian sexual ethic but the way that they said these things was filled with so much anger, so much hatred and vitriol and just trying to get the other side to react. Is this what Christ had in mind when he promises that his followers will be afflicted? Is this the kind of friction with the world that happens when the kingdom of Christ collides with the kingdom of this world? Or... Were these men pulling a system of morality from Scripture and then using it to manufacture a clash to feed the culture war? So my, my, my students and I, we got into a discussion. How do you know if opposition and persecution is legitimate or is merely the result of you being a jerk like everybody else in the culture war? The good news is Jesus gives us a test for authenticity at the close of the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. Matthew 5 is where he's, it's the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. He's beginning to outline the ways of his kingdom. And the Beatitudes are the postures of his kingdom, the values that Christ is building and forming in his people. His people will be called poor in spirit. Those who mourn their sin, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those with pure hearts, peacemakers. These are the values, the postures of Christ's kingdom. And then he concludes that list with blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Matthew 5. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and utter all kinds of evil against you on my account. Did you notice his oh-so-important qualifier? Christians should expect persecution, but only as a result of righteousness on Christ's account. And then with that transition, Christ launches into the ethics of his kingdom, ethics around money and divorce and religious practice and love of enemies and, yes, sexuality. Point being, you cannot merely agree with Christ's ethics 
Stake your flag on Christ's ethics. Adopt a Christian morality without also taking the postures of his kingdom, the Beatitudes, poverty of spirit, mourners of sin, a hunger and thirst for righteousness, pure hearts, peacemakers. Now let me make it very, very concrete. Let's take the exact same thing that the UT campus preachers were making their stand on. A biblical sexual ethic. Arguably the most controversial topic in our culture. Why in the world am I going to bring this up this morning? I don't even work here. (laughs) Well, I do, but my basement's down there and it keeps flooding, but that's a whole other thing. Every time this topic comes up, with friends, family, students, even bringing it up this morning in this church, I feel anxiety bringing it up. Not knowing how we'll, how we'll be saying that you hold to a traditional, biblical, orthodox, Christian sexual ethic, how's that going to be received by the person you're engaging with? That anxiety that you feel is proof that this is one of the prime areas of friction, prime areas of conflict, as the values of Christ's kingdom, namely biblical sexual ethic, conflict with our cultural sexual ethic of unlimited expression and indulgence. Christ's kingdom confronts every culture in some way, and the area of sexuality happens to be one of the prime places that his kingdom conflicts with our culture in this moment. But let me show you the point I'm trying to make by running our sexual ethic through the grid of the Beatitudes. If reviled, scorned for holding to a Christian sexual ethic, let it be done as we assume the posture of Christ in these Beatitudes. For again, you cannot adopt the ethics of Christ without adopting his posture as well. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I enter into this discussion fully aware of my spiritual poverty in this area. I have a profoundly broken and disordered sexuality and in desperate need of God's grace and redemption. Blessed are those who mourn. I don't just see my broken sexuality, but I am grieved by it. I weep and am angered over my sins. The smallest lust in my heart angers and saddens me far more than the brokenness of our culture. Blessed are the meek. That poverty in spirit and mourning over sin, it yields a meek, a humble, a gentle disposition that engages this contentious and often haughty debate. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I long for a righteous sexuality in myself before I long and turn to something in the world. My chief concern is my righteousness. I cannot condemn the world while also nursing secret sins. Blessed are the merciful. I don't get to condemn and judge others. That is Jesus' job. I require so much mercy from my king that all I can do is extend a prodigious mercy to all others, including and especially those with ethics that differ from my own. Blessed are the pure in heart. My aim is not to win the debate. My aim is that my heart would be pure, wholly devoted to my Lord Jesus. Blessed are the peacemakers. In a contentious and at war society, we want peace. 
I weep over the divide between our culture, between the, the evangelicals and whoever and whatever is over here. I weep over that divide and my longing is for restored relationships. Reconciliation is what I long for, and so I move towards other image bearers with whom I disagree. Now, if I do that, if this beatitude structure governs our engagement and posture to the world, and then you are hated by the left for holding a biblical sexual ethic, by the right for how you engage with and love those on the other side, so be it. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. I get to hear that from my Jesus. Now, this may not be the affliction, this may not be the persecution that Christians have faced throughout history and face right now throughout the world. We may not face the raised fist of violence, but right now we certainly face the raised eyebrow or rolled eye of scorn. Christians will always face persecution and affliction as the ways of our king conflict with the ways of this world. And if there is no conflict, no tension, no friction between our lives and the world, then something is amiss. And this is just one area of conflict. You can take the same thing and extend it to our money, extend it to the way that we spend our time, a million different things where Christ looks at our life and says, this is mine. It will conflict with the world. There ought to be some friction. Christ has told us to be in the world, but not of the world. If you are not in the world at all, who is there to persecute you? Who is there to raise an eyebrow at your way of life? And if you are too of the world to where your life is indistinguishable from the world around you, then what is there to raise an eyebrow at? Following our Jesus will yield persecution and affliction. He promises it. His word is true. Now, why in the world would you be willing to follow him into this? Why in the world would you be willing to embrace this cost of following Jesus? Let's turn to the reward of affliction. You know, my attempt, surprise, surprise, to give Bear this song, Chumbawamba's Tub Thumping to be exact, to give him something to persevere with, it didn't ultimately work. Uh, he still bikes, but definitely not because of the song. We left that a long time ago. Just didn't have the power. It's a silly chorus. I get knocked down, but I get up again. How many times do you have to get knocked down before you, your strength is gone and you're like, hey, thanks, Chumbawamba, I can't get back up? Silly song, no real source of confidence to persevere with. How is this psalm any different? What gives this psalm staying power? How can the singers be so confident that they will triumph while their enemies will be put to shame? How can they be confident that they will persevere if they know affliction will continue? So remember, as, as they sing these psalms, where are the people of God headed? They're singing this and they're walking towards Jerusalem. They're heading towards the temple. They're heading towards the presence of God. And they're confident that God was for them, confident that they would prevail because ultimately God will prevail and they are his. But look at the text real quick, just on your bulletin, phone, whatever. Don't you think as you sang this song, you'd get a little hiccup on verse 4? 
Your voice gets a little quieter. You mumble over the words here. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. Because if I'm singing this psalm, and I have to imagine the Israelites who sing this psalm, they sing, God is righteous, and what's the first thought that flits across their brain? I am unrighteous. I am one of the wicked. Well, shoot. If God is righteous and I am unrighteous, how can I sing this song and be confident that my enemies aren't going to prevail against me? Or better yet, how can I sing this psalm and be confident that I'm not actually one of the people described in verses 6 through 8? Those who hate Zion and will be put to shame. What if I'm actually an enemy of God and he's going to prevail against me? And as that anxiety plays across their minds and they're singing this psalm and they're heading towards Jerusalem, they're heading to feasts, yes, but you may not know what happens before these feasts occurred. There was an incredible and perpetual cycle of animal sacrifice to atone for their sins. So yeah, we've got a feast, we're going to party, but first we're going to kill a ton of animals. So much blood is going to be shed. Year after year, feast after feast, just a continual, perpetual shedding of blood. That was the only way that the Israelites had any confidence that they could sing this psalm and approach God, knowing that he was on, that they were on his side, that they were not indeed his enemies. But the bloodletting, the bloodshedding, it never stopped. Do you know where this is pointing? That impulse and that fear I am unrighteous. I have more in common with these housetop grass people who wither before they grow up, who won't receive the blessing. That impulse is indeed true. We are, in fact, in the category of the wicked, those who hate Zion and ought to be put to shame and turned backward. And yet, and yet, this psalm is put on the lips of Christ. It functions as an allusion to him. Afflicted from my youth. Who does that make you think of? Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. The furrows of this psalm plowed on the back of the singer. Think of the whip that Christ took to his back, scourging him before he went to the cross. Again, Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. No longer a yearly rhythm of bloodshedding for sins but a once-for-all, final, wounding, and crushing of the Son of God to forever atone for the sins of his people, turning enemies into children. Why does he face this? You know the song that we sang earlier, I love it. But there's one line that I, I, want, to, I want to rewrite somehow. It asks, it, it says something, I wish I had my script. It says something to the effect of, uh, how can his reward be mine? I don't know, Ben, it's in there. 
How can his reward be mine? Or how do I gain from his reward? That's what it says. How can I gain from his reward? Hebrews 12, 2. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Do you know what the joy was? Do you know what Christ's treasure was? It's not something that you get to join into. You were his treasure. That's why Jesus endured the shame of the cross, the affliction that he faced. It was to have you. He endured the shame and the most extensive and intense persecution the world has ever known, for he deserved none of it. He was perfectly righteous. But he endured it all because that affliction gave him you. Christian, you were Christ's reward. And if God was willing to subject his own son to the punishment that we deserve for rebelling against him, if he preserved you from being on the receiving end of his justice by placing his son in the dock, his son was placed in the seat of the accused, how will he not also preserve you in the midst of all affliction that you face for his sake? And not only this, that's Christ's reward, you are his reward, but there's a reward for you when you face affliction. Something interesting happens in the early church after they witness Christ suffer and die and rise again. They begin to speak of persecution as an opportunity to share in Christ's sufferings. 1 Peter 4.13, don't be surprised when persecution comes, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. After seeing how Christ endured suffering and persecution for their sake, they begin to see persecution as something, yes, it's scary, but it's also a chance to share something with my Jesus. There's something here. For a strange and nearly unexplainable reason, Christians have been this peculiar people who throughout history have found their joy to increase even as they face affliction persecution, death for the sake of their king. One thinks of the most persecuted church in our culture, the African-American church. Slave ships, plantations, beatings, Jim Crow, the KKK. And yet, do you know their legacy? The legacy of the early black church is one of intense joy preserved and celebrated in the spirituals that they wrote, spirituals like the song, This Joy. This joy that I have, the world didn't give it to me, the world didn't give it to me, and the world can't take it away. How can they sing those lyrics in the midst of what they face? Have you ever wondered how did the early black church endure this? How could they sing songs like this? African-American scholar Howard Thurman gave a lecture at Harvard on just that topic, the meaning of the spirituals written by the early black church, and he says this, the slaves made a worthless life, a life of being chattel property, the life of merely being a thing, just a body to use, a life worth living. It may be hard to convey what intense joy came over those who were just then learning that the God of the universe made them in his own image, that God loved them so dearly that he would take on flesh and die for them, and that they would rule with him in eternity, even judging angels. Those who had been told again and again that they were not even worthy of citizenship were now being told that they were worthy 
of the status of children of God and citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. The spirituals are filled with joy. Joy in the midst of suffering. Joy that defies all circumstances because they knew the affliction was temporary, but the glory of heaven awaited them, and that legacy continues. Or one thinks of the stories like that of the two Margarets of Scotland. You may not know this story. I didn't know this story until my buddy Andy from Scotland in his thick Scottish, Scottish brogue told it to me. I wish I could tell it to you in the same accent, but I'm going to do it in my Lexington accent. So there's two women, both named Margaret, 118, 170, in Scotland, and they were both tied to stakes out in the sea for the water as it rose up to drown them if they did not recant their faith in the time that they had left. The older Margaret, age 70, was tied farther out in the water so that the younger Margaret would watch her drown first. And the soldiers and those who were gathered around on the banks, they watched this happen, and they're yelling at young 18-year-old Margaret Wilson to recant her faith and be saved. That's all you have to do. Young 18-year-old Margaret. Instead, these soldiers got to watch her overcome with a peculiar joy as she sang Psalm 25 and began praying in an incredibly loud voice for the salvation of those who killed her. A peculiar joy in the midst of suffering that this world cannot explain and that can only be known in the midst of affliction. That's a joy that spreads like wildfire. The result of the two Margarets was that even the persecutors were brought to wrestle with an unexplainable joy that can only be explained by Christ. Christians suffer as they follow their Jesus in love for his ways and faithfulness to his ways and also a profound love even for those who are their enemies. Affliction is promised as a reality for the people of God. And as you endure it, you share in the sufferings of Christ. That's a heavy sermon. I want to close with a word for those of us, like myself, who know all too well that we waver in the face of opposition and affliction, even the subtle version that we face right now. Give me a word, preacher. You know, Peter... The disciple, when faced with suffering for his faith, he failed miserably. Oh, that's encouraging. Failed miserably. The first time that his faith might cost him something, he wilts. He denies Jesus one, two, three times. I don't even know who that man is. Failed miserably. Do not pass go, do not collect $100. No, Peter. But while he sat in a puddle of his shame and his failure, he watches his Savior walk by, watched Jesus stand perfectly silent as he is falsely condemned, never opening his mouth, watches Jesus beaten, crucified, dead, and buried, and then three days later, rise again. And it's seeing Jesus suffer for him 
that transforms Peter from this failure to who you see in the gospel or in the, the book of Acts. This remarkably courageous man. Jesus even tells him in the conversation to follow that, hey, Peter, you're going to be crucified like me, but it's going to happen upside down. Brutal. He learns to suffer well. How? Because he watched his Savior suffer for him. Do you want to learn how to suffer well for Jesus? You need to see how well Jesus suffered for you. Watch him persevere perfectly to the end, never wavering, never failing, never taking a step back, because you as his reward were in view. And he has given us this table to which we now turn as a weekly reminder of that sacrifice. For those of us that doubt, can this really be true of me? Jesus, I failed too much. Not only have I not faced affliction well, but Jesus, I'm turning into one of your enemies again this week. I'm running off to sin, running off to a far land. Jesus gives you this table. And he says, meet me here every single week. This is my body, this is my blood shed for you because you were my reward and I wanted you. Let this table encourage you to persevere in this life, holding fast at times, stumbling forwards at times, but all the same you are moving forward because Christ has you. That's it. You're, her, you're his forever. And one day you will get to have this feast with him in the new heavens and the new earth. <laughs>